Alright folks, I'm going to read from this article I found today. I was uh, looking up some more uh, info on um, basically Mackinder's World Island Theory or Heartland Theory and something that would... uh, Anyway, so I found this article. This is from Clock Tower Group. Is the world ready for a Machiavellian America? What was the most important ge- what was the most important geopolitical event of 2021? It couldn't have been anything in the ongoing Beijing versus Washington saga as that rivalry took a backseat to domestic politics for both rivals, as we had expected it would. Number one, if Russian tanks roll roll into Kiev over the next few weeks, we will look back at Russian President Vladimir Putin's July op-ed, the one in which he posited that Russians and Ukrainians were one people, as significant. Alright, so by the way, this was written February 2nd, 2022. Number two, or perhaps the most prominent geopolitical event of 2021 was the dawning of a new military alliance between the behemoths of America, the United Kingdom, and Australia, imposing, imposingly named AUKUS. Our readers know where we stand on that one as well. No, the most significant geopolitical event of 2021 was one that barely caught anyone's attention. The United Arab Emirates, UAE, a country so precariously nestled between rivals that it has since (sighs) inception sought foreign powers to guarantee its loosely defined and ruler-outlined borders, ignominiously dropped in mid-December its $23 billion deal to purchase F-35 fighter jets, munition, and drones from the U.S. The same month, the the UAE concluded a $19 billion deal to purchase 80 French Rafale fighter jets. If the UAE fighter jet deal was just about swapping a U.S package for a French one, we would not dwell on it. However, however, interspersed in almost all media accounts of the affair are anonymous local sources claiming that the F-35 deal was abrogated due to Washington's insistence that the UAE ends its relationship with Huawei in return for the fighter jet deal promised under the Trump administration. The Biden administration demanded that Abu Dhabi exclude Huawei from its 5G network, while U.S. intelligence officials believe that the Chinese military is building an installation at Port Khalifa. Red appear at Port Khalifa. The cancellation of the fighter jet deal by a non-G20 state that cannot even be referred to as a regional hegemon must have felt like quite a slap in the face of the U.S., especially given that the current tally of Huawei haters 
is down to just nine states. After some five years of mounting a global campaign to ban the Chinese tech firm across two diametrically opposed administrations, all Washington, D.C. diplomats and generals have to show for our bans in nine countries out of 193 sovereign states in the world. How is the UAE fighter jet Huawei saga relevant today, particularly at a time when Russian tanks are potentially on the cusp of crossing Ukraine's borders? It is far more prevalent than most invest investors think as it reveals the emerging sinews of a new global disorder. Welcome to the multipolar world. The UAE episode is merely the cherry on top of a very bitter lemon merengue pie of, multipolar of multipolarity that the U.S. has been nibbling at for the past decade. Our assertion... Ah, fucking A, sorry. Our assertion in this report is that the U.S. is broadly coming to terms with the fact that it is no longer a global hegemon and that essentially no other power gives two hoots what Washington wants. To be clear, this is, this is the very definition of multipolarity, a world in which multiple, thus multi, sovereign states can pursue their foreign policy independent of one another. A unipolar global system is simple. A global hegemon lords over the rest of the world like a bully in a schoolyard. Look at this shit. Even everybody using the same fucking analogy. Fights rarely break out, and if they do, it is the bully that starts and finishes them. Yeah. Pol political scientists disagree whether the world has was ever unipolar, but we would argue that it came close to it in the two decades following the collapse of the Berlin Wall from, from November 1989 to some point in the later years of the first decade of the 21st century. The 1990s and early 2000s were particularly good years for America in relative terms. And geopolitical power is all about relative gains. The U.S. nominal GDP as percent of global economy nearly closed the gap with all other geopolitical powers combined. U.S. military expenditure as percent of the global reach. Sorry. U.S. military expenditure as percent of the global reached an astronomical gap at the height of the Iraq and Afghanistan wars as the U.S. technological, technological supremacy and conventional military forces swelled. Meanwhile, U.S. R&D expenditure totaled more than that of all its potential arrivals combined. Traditional measures of geopolitical power, as clunky as they are, tell a similar story. The U.S. was left without a challenger for those two decades, thanks to the collapse of the Soviet Union and the early years of Chinese, of Chinese Renaissance that left Beijing looking way up at the U.S., since the height of its power in 1945, U.S. Geo geopolitical prowess declined 47% relative to 
relative to the world until stabilizing at the current levels in 2013. Against China specifically, the relative power decline is even more pronounced. Using the even cruder National Capability Index by the Correlates of War Project, which focuses on 20th century measures of power, the U.S. had reached a nadir, nadir, nadir of relative power in 2016, not seen since 1885. A bipolar global system is similarly, similarly simple. The two powers that are powerful enough to carve up the planet create two warring camps, while proxy battles ensue across the borderlands of the two camps. The two schoolyard bullies retain the ability to maintain discipline inside their own camps. I don't know why they keep saying... Anyways, most American policymakers, analysts, commentators, and op-ed writers have become enamored with this bipolar analogy, dusting off their Cold War playbooks for the emerging U.S.-China tensions. However, a bipolar ordering of the world has been quite rare throughout history. Far more frequent are the unipolar and a multipolar global orders. We have elucidated our thoughts on the paucity of this analogy in many previous reports. The year 2022 is not 1945. The world is not emerging from four years of vicious warfare that culminated in the use of nuclear weapons. The world's greatest economy is not lying in ruin and poverty as Europe was in 1945, beset with tens of millions of refugees and under a military occupation by transcontinental powers intent on carving it up like a birthday cake. India is not a colony of a tired empire and China is not ripped asunder by a civil war. It was these start it was these starting conditions that allowed the U.S. and the Soviet Union to carve up the planet in 1945. A bipolar world order emerged unnaturally and in large part due to the near-complete destruction of several major powers that previously had a say in how the world was run. Today, Europe and Japan may be mired in stagnation, but they exist. Russia has stabilized itself after the depressing 1990s and has even re-established a light version of the Soviet sphere of influence, with a potential IPA edition coming out soon in Ukraine. And while China and the U.S. are clearly a head above the rest, combined they are less powerful in relative terms than the U.S. and the Soviet Union at the conclusion of World War II. As a stark illustration of America's supremacy in 1956-57, the U.S. flexed its awesome power by forcing the U.K., France, and Israel to ignominiously abandon plans to carve up Egypt for their commercial and geopolitical interests. President Eisenhower famously threatened to pull back purchases of sterling bonds by the U.S. and lines of credit from the IMF and the U.S. Import-Export Bank, potentially plunging the GDP as a consequence of London's illusions of imperial grandeur.
Yeah, this is they're still they're still fucking under their illusion, man. In 1956, the UK may have been st- stuck in a gray semi-socialist rut that makes Pink Floyd's music video for "We Don't Need No Education" look downright ab- ebullient. Ab- ebullient. I guess that's how I said, but. It was still a nuclear power with a vast navy and the world's second largest economy. In other words, the UK in 1956 was was no UAE in 2022, and yet the UK tucked tucked its tail and obeyed US demands. In 2022, the UAE has not. A multipolar world is not so simple. Instead of one or two bullies, the world is a free-for-all. Not really. I don't think free for all is the right word. Anyways, a schoolyard with multiple bullies and training, vying for influence and lunch money. A world in which countries like the UAE can shop around for the best deal rather than toe the line of the world's policemen or the regional hegemon. We know theoretically and empirically from academic research in political science and history that a multipolar world is also messy with greater frequency of interstate conflict. While this was written in 2022, they obviously didn't see the peace deal China would have made with fucking uh, Iran and UAE, right? Or Saudi Arabia. For much of the 21st century, the U.S. as a state, but also its elites has refused to accept the reality of multipolarity. Both under President Obama and President Trump, the U.S. acted as if it were still the global hegemon. President Obama thought that, yeah, this is what I'm saying, that's all they have. All they have left is Hollywood to just project their power. That's it. President Obama thought that he could use U.S. geopolitical and economic influence to entice Beijing to corporation, a continuation of the Bush-Clinton-Bush II line of thought. President, Th- President Trump thought that he could simply bully allies and rivals alike. Neither had much, neither, neither had much success, as evidenced by the paltry coalition of the willing of the willing today arrayed against China. Instead of an alliance of multiple regional powers to counter Chinese assertiveness in East and Southeast Asia, the U.S. has put together a military alliance made up of Australia and Australia's actual antipode, the U.K. As in, the British Isles are as far away from Australia as possible given the curvature of the Earth. (laughs) I don't know what Australia is doing, man. America is gonna is basically telling Australia you're gonna starve to death. The paucity of returns on U.S. diplomatic investment is not surprising. It is predicted by political science theory and empirical research. In a multipolar global context, allies free ride and seek to maximize relative gains even against their own partners. The U.S. is finally beginning to learn these lessons after nearly two decades of playing by the old hegemonic rules established in the 1990s. That's what money and power does. It stops you from evolving. 
Bottom line, over the past two decades, the U.S. military, diplomatic, and intelligence elites have wildly oscillated between a liberal internationalist and nationalist isolationist administrations. From Obama to Trump, the ideological variance has indeed been, been extreme. But in geopolitical terms, in terms of international relations theory, Washington, D.C. never wavered in its belief that it was still in charge, that it still had a hand on the proverbial steering wheel of geopolitics. That appears to be changing, and a new Machiavellian foreign policy may be emerging. What happens when Washington wakes up and smells multipolarity? What makes us think that the U.S. has become aware of geopolitical multipolarity under the Biden administration, that it was not aware of it under the Trump and Obama administrations, and what does any of this mean for global markets? There are three ways that a great power, broadly defined, can react to a multipolar environment. It can ignore it. It can pursue a policy of offshore balancing, or it can become far more of an active balancer. It appears to us that the U.S. has finally begun to accept the multipolar global order and practice active balancing to offset it. The head-in-the-sand approach, a.k.a. isolationism, which I think America is doing basically whether consciously or un or unconsciously the Trump administration pursued some mix of active balancing and isolationism but much of the administration's thinking was colored by an ideological commitment to a US brand of continental European national nationalism as such US allies that embraced some other ideology say Germany and the EU broadly conceived, were seen as adversaries purely for ideological reasons. Instead of balancing against rivals, the Trump administration went hard after military allies, NATO member states, South Korea, Japan, etc., demanding monetary compensation for loyalty like a neighborhood mafioso demanding its pizzo. pizzo. Yeah, I mean, it's <sighs> what has changed? There's nothing new under the sun, man. On occasion, the Trump administration pursued active balancing. We would argue that the administration pushed Pyongyang with credible threats, getting the Kim Jong-un regime to the negotiating table far more than any previous administration had done for 30 years. For the most part, however... Trump's geopolitical thinking was rooted in a naive, uniquely American view that the U.S. can hide behind its two vast oceans, bury its head in the fruits of its manifest destiny, that means geographical space, and let the rest of the world to its own devices. Even on China, Trump only turned over U.S. policy to the national security hawks in mid-2020, four years into his presidency when prospects of being a deal-maker with a country that ostensibly allowed COVID-19 to escape its borders 
started to look problematic for the general elections that year. Remember, as late as February 2020, Trump was tweeting against using national security as an excuse with which to abrogate, abrogate trade with China. He had negotiated the trade deal in December 2019 and was firmly committed to campaigning for re-election on the merits of that deal. Whether one agrees with the, with the Trump doctrine or not, it was still rooted in the view that the U.S. is a global hegemon. As such, countering Russia and China often took a backseat to correcting America's trade deficits with various allies, particularly Europe. That strategy, no surprise given global that strategy, no surprise given global multipolarity, has failed spectacularly, and America's trade imbalance with Europe is at a record high. Making America great again was a function of pursuing a mercantilist policy and countering ostensibly liberal entanglements abroad. Where the Trump administration revealed its ideological bias is in confusing U.S. alliances with liberal regi regimes as part of some vast internationalist conspiracy. Trump also works for the corporation, man. This, this is what I'm saying. Americans think Trump is <laughs> for for America. No, Trump is for making his corporate buddies rich richer. <sighs> the US did not support NATO, EU and its democratic allies in East Asia out of an ideological commitment to multiculturalism, liberalism, drum circles, or some other Davos man conspiracy. Rather, the U.S. maintains these vestiges of the Cold War because these alliance structures served as, wait for it, lily pads for U.S. military interventions into the vastness of Eurasia. Asian, Caucasian, Eurasian, okay? Eurasia, the world island. What the Trump doctrine ultimately ignored is the most basic tenet of geopolitics. Eurasia is the world island. The world island contains the necessary population, access to commodities and energy, and technological innovation to completely obviate any need for naval trade routes. Geography, motherfucker. In other words, he who controls the world island controls the universe. The reason the U.S. remained committed to military alliances vestigial to the end of World War II and the Cold War is not out of sympathy or some internationalist conspiracy theory looking to fleece regular Joe out of his $30 an hour manufacturing job, but due to real politique. As such, President Trump's policy of letting America's rivals off the hook and pressuring its allies made absolutely no sense in either a unipolar, bipolar, or a multipolar regime. This is what I say. This is why I'm saying all the fucking leaders of the world are probably working together, man.
I don't know, man. I think it's all wrestling, or most of it is all wrestling. Okay, the head in the clouds approach, a.k.a. liberal internationalism. Yeah, this is uh, more like uh, Musk's, down Musk's alley. This is more Musk, Elon Musk. Okay, whereas Donald Trump's brand of wealth politic was ideological and aggressive towards allies... President Obama tried to hearken back to the 1990s and entice both allies and rivals to follow U.S. imperatives on the back of rhetoric alone. Allies largely ignored President Obama despite his electoral promises in 2008 to rebuild U.S.-led multilateralism. Allies in Europe and East Asia barely shifted their military burden. Meanwhile, Obama's dialogue with China did not steer Beijing off its course of assertiveness in East Asia. Yeah, because everybody knows Obama's just an actor, man. Yes, we can. He's just a fucking actor. Useless motherfucking actor. Piece of shit actor. That's what he is. The Obama administration restarted freedom of navigation operations in the South China Sea only in late 2015, after China had already completed much of the infrastructure buildup in the form of man-made islands capable of serving as launching pads for anti-access area denial operations. The reset with Russia similarly failed spectacularly when Moscow annexed Crimea under Obama's watch in 2014 not to mention a slew of failed half-interventions in the Middle East that exacerbated instability in the region, particularly the spectacular failures in Libya and Syria. Oil, man. Oil is energy. With no energy, you can't have no army, no nothing. While most commentators and op-ed writers would argue that Obama's foreign policy was an extension of the U.S. liberal internationalism school, it was classical offshore balancing. Obama tried to reduce U.S. commitments abroad, pivot to the regions where U.S. interests were at risk, and increase the burden carried by allies. Yeah. They're not going to do anything. They're not going to lift a finger to help you, but make you... Make you the jackasses that have to carry all the burdens. Right? Fucking come to me. <laughs> Fucking, what is it, Matthew 11.30? For my burden is light. For my yoke is light and my burden is easy, right? Fucking, this is the textbook Offshore Balancing promoted by realist aca- academics in the international relations discipline of political science. In a way, it was the same policy as Donald Trump's, but conducted with much more pleasant verbiage and with less antagonism towards allies, which, given the strategy relies on allies to carry the burden, is kind of an important difference. It's very simple. One will just, no bullshit, tell you how it is from the get-go. The other approach is, well, it's just good cop, bad cop, man. They work together, okay? (laughs) Good cop, bad cop. Okay. Where was I? Right. The problem with offshore balancing is that China and Russia are not Yugoslavia 
are not Yugoslavia and Iraq. It was easy to convince allies in the late 1990s to pulverize Belgrade or to build a coalition of the semi-willing in the early 2000s to invade Afghanistan. Turned out to be a bit more difficult to do so with Iraq, but the Bush administration still came away with a multilateral co coalition larger than what the Trump-Biden administrations have constructed against China. While the Iraq invasion strained U.S. alliances, Washington still got to do whatever it wanted. A coalition of the willing was created in both cases. Today, given the complicated multipolar context, it is far more difficult to build such offshore jumping-off points with which to project U.S. power. As we have been elucidating since 2019, a multipolar context is one where coordinating with allies becomes much more difficult, almost impossible, when even a country like the UAE can ignore the U.S. administration the king is truly wearing no clothes anymore. Ultimately, both Trump and Obama largely failed in defending U.S. interests because they ignored the global context. It is hard to blame either given that they were surrounded by U.S. diplomatic, military, academic, literary, intelligence, and op-ed writing elites incapable of properly assessing the medium in which they were operating. Like goldfish swimming back and forth in the bowl, these elites were and largely remain unaware that they're actually in water. 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 As such, yeah, they forgot their fish. They think they're the big fish. <laughs> they think they're the ones controlling the aquarium. As such, and then Morpheus is going, you think that's air you're breathing? Fish? Mr. Fish, as such, they have continued to bathe in the dominant narrative that the USA is number one, even as country after country has ignored Washington's entreats to ban Huawei curtail trade with China, and jump on the anti-Beijing bandwagon, or in the case of Europe, cease building a massive natural gas pipeline that would, that would rather, sorry, that would further tap Russia's vast supplies of natural gas for the continent's energy supply. Well, this was written before they blew up the Nord, Nord Stream, so there you go. It's even more clear. It's even more clear. The wake up and smell multipolarity approach, aka active balancing. Whether subconsciously or consciously, the US is increasingly becoming aware that is no that it is no longer a global hegemon. It is in fact barely a first among equal state. It is simply a great power trying to make sense of the geopolitical environment and therefore hyper-focused on its own interests. President Trump nearly got there with his first America First approach. Sorry, President Trump nearly got there with his America for First approach, but his strategy was blinded by his ideological affinity for nationalism and commercial mercantilism. 
Right. America can't do anything without its dollar and its free lunch. That's done. So now, well, <laughs> I don't know what's going to happen now. Either they're going to have to start. It is, it's. This is what I'm saying, man. You, they maxed out their credit card so much. Under Biden, we have been observing a subtle shift in U.S. policymaking. In both the cases of Taiwan and Ukraine, one way to describe Washington policy is that Americans are writing checks they can't cash. Yeah, even Scott Ritter said the same thing. These motherfuckers are writing checks that their mouth that they can't cash. Their mouths are writing checks that they can't cash. All these pledges of all this money from what? America is fucking bankrupt. What fucking money? Even Ghana's president is saying, yeah, that's fine. One billion, you're pledging one billion U.S. dollars. But we we know how this shit works. They're saying we're not stupid no more. <laughs> Everybody knows, man. Shit. Writing, Americans are writing checks they can't cash. Yeah, they're still writing checks here when the rest of the world gone cashless, man. Fucking digital cashless. Because it's about numbers. Okay? Digital makes it much easier when you have bigger numbers. Fucking just simple common sense shit like this they can't even fathom yet over here. With Taiwan, US, this is what I'm saying. This is what money does. Makes you fucking stupid. With Taiwan, US policymakers have ramped up aggressive posture with a string of firsts that would surprise even the hawks in the Trump administration. In the case of Ukraine, the Biden administration has made several statements that are simply nonsensical. Yeah, Biden is just acting stupid. He's thinking by acting stupid, people won't take it out, take shit out on him. Well, the fir first, the White House has continued to assert that Ukraine can join NATO even though its European allies are opposed to both enlargement of the EU and NATO further east. In fact, the oft-cited 2008 NATO Bucharest summit is famous not for its offer of membership to Ukraine and Georgia, as the U.S. media repeatedly seems to air, but precisely for the opposite. Angela Merkel effectively vetoed the Bush administration's offer of membership to Ukraine and Georgia at the summit, at that summit. The Bucharest summit put an end to Ukraine's membership hopes. Second, the Biden administration has stated that Ukraine could join NATO even though it has several territorial disputes with Russia, of which the status of Crimea is obviously the most relevant one. Yeah, man, fucking Ukraine was a buffer zone between the Soviets and the Europeans uh, uh, after after World War Two, so it's supposed to be it's, it was supposed to remain a neutral buffer zone, but obviously NATO said no. We want this is what I'm saying. They'll they'll say one thing, do the opposite, and then call the rest of the world hypocrites. I mean, I mean. How are you supposed to deal with a dumb fuck like this?
It's not an adult. You're not dealing with an adult. So how is it supposed to take these people seriously? Obviously, they don't take them seriously because they're not adults. This is a problem as NATO formalized its enlargement criteria at the 99 Washington Summit when the Membership Action Plan mechanism was set up, the mechanism that Germany has been consistently vetoing for Ukraine. The most important chapter of the Membership Action Plan MAP process is the willingness to settle ongoing territorial disputes peacefully. Even a minor even a minor border dispute between Croatia and Slovenia almost held up Zagreb's accession to NATO. It is ludicrous to imagine that Kiev could somehow sneak into NATO with 7% of its territory under dispute with a nuclear power next door. Okay, let me see. The first with Taiwan under the Biden administration. (laughs) January 21, Xiao Bikim was officially invited to and attended the inauguration of U.S. President Joe Biden, the first time Taiwan's U.S. representative had officially attended a U.S. president inauguration since the U.S. broke off diplomatic relations with Taiwan in 1979. Whatever, you can read that if you want. This is what I'm saying, man. America only wants to be your friend if it needs something from you. Third, since the 1994 Brussels Declaration, NATO has stressed that that only candidate states with a strong foundation of democracy, individual liberty, and rule of law are allowed to accede to the organization. While it is perfectly reasonable that the U.S. would want to let Ukraine into NATO for its geopolitical interests and thus ignore such conditionality, it is highly unlikely as European neighbors would. And given that NATO accession, accession must be approved by each member state, the, and ratified by the legislatures in each state, the probability of Ukraine joining NATO anytime soon is effectively zero. The U.S. is not aware of all these hurdles to Ukraine's NATO accession. To be fair, Moscow is also aware of Moscow is also aware of these hurdles, which is why its assertion that Ukraine's NATO flirtation is a national security risk is vacuous in our view that we in our view that we expanded in a july special report the kremlin is engaged in broad negotiations with the west on a slew of issues in which of which ukraine's neutrality is merely one of many concessions moscow would like to see the difference today is that Bi- is that the Biden administration appears to be comfortable with the dangerous game of chicken it seems to be playing with Moscow over Ukraine. Just as it appears to be comfortable playing the dangerous game of chicken with China over Taiwan. Yeah, 
This is that's the best analogy these motherfuckers could put this as. It's a game of chicken. Guess who the chicken is? The U.S. seems to have realized that it is no longer the global hegemon. Really? As such, <laughs> as such, preserving the hegemonic peace and order is no longer necessary necessarily in its interest. A military conflict between Russia and Ukraine or China and Taiwan would ensnare both Moscow and Beijing, respectively, in a messy, prolonged, and open-ended conflict. Furthermore, it would solve America's main problem with multipolarity, coordination with allies. In the case of Russia, a full invasion of Ukraine would be disastrous. The country has a vast territory, motive, motivated populace, and a skilled military that, while under-equipped, has proven itself in combat against both Russian regular and irregular troops in the contested oblasts of Donetsk and Lukansk. Well, this was written in 2022. If you see what's happening right now, they would not say that any longer. From the U.S. perspective, that is precisely that what the doctor ordered to restore its hegemony, drawing its rivals into military confrontations that will be difficult to disentangle from and resolve. Look, man, America's bankrupt, so they got nothing to lose. They would much rather see the rest of these motherfuckers who have all this future to look forward to destroy themselves. Yeah, they would much rather see that happen. Washington learned firsthand from its experience in the Middle East over the past two decades. Iraq and Afghanistan have done nothing to bolster U.S. security. Instead, they have hurt U.S. credibility, drained its purse and distracted it from the rise of serious challengers elsewhere, Russia, China, and Russia. Why should the U.S. not try to make its geopolitical rivals repeat its own mistakes? Furthermore, the easiest way to encourage Europe, Japan, South Korea, and India to join a coalition of the willing against Russia or China is to let Moscow and Beijing overreact and bear their fangs in anger. We dub this Machiavellian approach to foreign policy as active balancing. The U.S. is willing to stoke fires around the world precisely because it has finally become aware that it is, that it is no longer the world's fireman. And the beauty of this realization is that it does not require cognition. The Biden administration may not include among its members the greatest geopolitical strategist, but all this approach requires is understanding that the risks to the U.S. from regional con conflagrations are minima minimal, which in the case of Ukraine, more than Taiwan, they truly are. If Russia were to invade Ukraine and make a bid for the entire country, a massive conflict would, s conflict would see refugees, refugees flood U.S. allies in Europe who have themselves to blame for not listening to the entreats of, of, of the Obama and Trump administrations to arm themselves for the 21st century. The U.S. has basically no trade with Russia or, or Ukraine. 
and would therefore see no negative economic effects. And while the spike in oil prices would invariably flow back into the U.S. economy at a dangerous time due to already historical price pressures, that would give the Biden administration an exogenous factor to blame for domestic inflation. While we gloss over the cost, yeah, that's why they say, oh, it's Putin's war that's causing these pr gas prices to increase. No, it's it's not. <laughs> it's NATO pushing east. That's why Russia is defending itself. It's, it's not that complicated. America is a hypocrite, hypocritical country that says one thing, does another. There's no adults here. So what are you supposed? What are, what are they supposed to do? Just take it. Just take it up their ass. They've been taking it up their ass. They're tired of it now. Whole world tired of it now. Which is why the Biden administration is either purposefully trying to goad Russia into a war, as Russian President Vladimir Putin recently accused Washington or has ended up backing its way into a Machiavellian coupe de grace. Bottom line, once America realizes it is no longer in charge, it will have little reputational and geopolitical interest in maintaining a global order. Investors, yeah, all the banks are starting to fail. What do you think is going to happen? Investors should therefore observe the situation in Ukraine as one in which the U.S. is as much an instigator of tensions as Russia. In addition, we should expect the U.S. to learn to like being the instigator. The U.S. will acquire a taste for Machiavellianism, Machiavellianism, which will make for a much less stable world going forward. Yeah, Joffrey gonna start going crazy and then guess what's gonna happen? We've all we all know what's going to happen to Joffrey. Back to the 19th century. At this point, we have likely lost all our readers, our liberal friends, true believers in the magnanimity, magnanimity of American hegemony, are likely aghast at our callous reinterpretation of U.S. support for the freedom-loving Ukrainians. Yeah, freedom. That's the only word these people know over here. And they don't even know what it means. They are likely also miffed at our characterization of the Obama foreign policy years as an abject failure. Yeah. Our conservative friends are A, mad at mad that we do not consider Trump and the second coming of Karl von Clausewitz and B, are just angry that we give the Biden administration credit for Machiavellianism. That's why he's playing the fool. <laughs> That's why he's playing the bumbling fool. The first three charges, the first three charges warm our cold, aloofly indifferent hearts. The fourth charge that the Biden administration knows what it is doing is worth unpacking. Policymakers become aware of their constraints through trial and error. The Biden administration, while starkly different in ideology and rhetoric from the Trump administration, is nonetheless its successor on the global stage. As investors have now realized, the Biden administration has followed up on many of the Trump policies as we warned multiple times that it would 
particularly when it comes to the ongoing trade war with China. As long as they keep fucking with China, more wa- more Walmarts will close, and and America as it is is already bankrupt. People are p- fucking just barely covering the minimum requirements. It's gonna get even worse because of these dummies. As such, the U.S. has had 14 years between the two Obama administrations, one Trump's, and now a year of Biden's to observe and learn from its constraint. The greatest geopolitical constraint has indeed been multipolarity. It is why the U.S. has faced indifferent allies unwilling to stand up to Russia and China. And often, yeah, I mean, just look at the world map. Why would they go against it's just fucking, just look at the world map. And often willing to make their own deals with both. Just the way how America was founded, they got tired of British orders from all the way across the pond. They said, fuck off, we want to do, we're going to do our own thing. Yeah, it's not that complicated. It's not that complicated. It is why the U.S. has faced indifferent allies unwilling to... Okay, to counter this, the Biden administration now appears to have shifted gears, openly encouraging both Ukraine and Taiwan to pursue high-risk behavior, blowback to the traditional allies be damned. Yeah, U.S. agreed to the one-China policy, and now they're inviting... This is what I'm saying. They say one thing, do another. You can't trust America anymore. You can't trust them with your money. You can't trust them with your kids. Nothing. So why would... That's what I'm saying. Whole world is watching right now. What should investors expect from this policy shift going forward? Geopolitical volatility. A multipolar world experiences a greater degree of uncertainty and interstate conflict, which I disagree that much is understood both theoretically and empirically. But inve- we'll see. We shall see. I mean, but investors should not assume that greater geopolitical volatility will lead to higher global equity volatility. Few geopolitical conflicts end up moving markets on a sustainable basis. In fact, higher frequency may also desensitize investors to geopolitical conflict. Yeah. Everybody just wants to trade and prosper. Nobody wants war anymore. People are done with fucking war. They're done. Take the current situation in Ukraine. Is the potential Russian invasion to blame for the U.S. equity market correction? That is highly unlikely. Multiple large N-quant studies have proven that the long-dated U.S. Treasury tends to perform as the most favored global safe haven asset in times of geopolitical conflict. Gold is the second favorite, and yet the 10-year bond has been selling off since the onset of the Russia-Ukraine tensions. Gold appears to have finally caught a bid, but we would argue that a 40-year high in CPI prints and a spectacular collapse in BTC thanks to the 10-year bonds selling off, has more to do with the move in gold prices than the Kremlin's designs on Kiev. Geopolitical Alpha While higher geopolitical volatility may not 
be a major macro variable, it should drive geopolitical alpha opportunities from time to time. For example, the sell-off in Russian assets is clearly driven by the tensions with Ukraine. We would posit... Yeah, this was written in 2022, so it's, it's already... There's already been big changes that have that have happened since then. Okay, we would posit that Russia is now missing a major move in EM commodity-linked markets. Both EM equity markets and FX have strongly outperformed the U.S. amidst the January sell-off. There are sound macro reasons for why that is so. If Russia continues to diverge for geopolitical reasons, it may become the buying opportunity of the year if Moscow ends up not invading Ukraine in a significant way. EM outperformance. A Machiavellian America should be positive for emerging markets outside of those situations where it is in Washington's interest to start a conflict, potentially both China and Russia on occasion. The U.S. largely stopped paying for geopolitical favors in the twilight of the Cold War. There's no reason to pay for alliances when the world is devoid of rivals. For example, U.S. foreign aid as percent of GDP collapsed at the height of its hegemony in the late 1990s, while U.S. legislation outlawed foreign corrupt practices with the passage of the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act in 1977, making it difficult to complete with less normatively driven rivals. To be clear, EM outperformance cannot be simply based on U.S. aid and more corruption. Investors should expect U.S.-led international organizations, such as the IMF and the World Bank, to kick into gear and offer easier conditionality to geopolitically sensitive economies. Nobody trusts the IMF and World Bank anymore. Because the U.S. dollar is a debt trap. That's basically what it is. Meanwhile, the U.S. and its allies will actively seek to counter China's Belt and Road Initiative with its own infrastructure rollouts, such as the recently announced G7-B3W project. Well, G7 is drowning, so good luck with that. For investors seeking to navigate the murky geopolitical waters of the next decade, we would offer a final word of advice. A Machiavellian America will become quite adept at using all tools at its disposal to sow discord and instability when it serves it to do so, including propaganda. As such, relying on U.S. or indeed any Anglo-Saxon media for analysis of Russian intentions in Ukraine as an example is about as cogent as relying on RT for insights into Moscow's thinking. While this may be frustrating in terms of objective analysis, it will create massive trading opportunities as disinformation purposely obfuscates the potential outcomes and their probabilities, leading the median investors astray. The coming decade should therefore be a bumper crop harvest for geopolitical alpha. I don't know what that means, geopolitical alpha. What the fuck does that mean? Okay. Disclaimer. 
This report is proprietary and confidential and may not be copied, quoted, referenced, or distributed in any format without the express written approval of the of Clock Tower Group. Any violation of the foregoing may result in material harm to Clock Tower. The views expressed reflect the personal views of the members of Clock Tower strategy team and do not necessarily reflect the views of Clock Tower. Okay. Whatever. Well, I will put the link to this article. You can check out the Eurasia World Island map. They have shared on this website. And yeah, if they can connect all this, they don't have to worry about uh using the sea routes which can be pirated very easily this is all on land yeah so yeah silk road 2.0 is the future eurasia was probably where we all started from to begin with and now it's going back to to that again so it's one love if everybody just worked together everything would be better just saying Alright, peace, monkeys, peace.